Welcome to the Podcast Potables Network. You are listening to Process Potables, brought to you by the Andrew Boss team at Berkshire Hathaway. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a five-star rating, and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter and on Tapped at Process Potables, and on Instagram at Podcast Potables Network. Check out our other shows on Twitter. Power Bombs and Potables, our professional wrestling podcast hosted by our friend Corey Oates. You can find them on Twitter at PowerBombsPPN. They recap the past week in professional wrestling television and is out in your feeds every Monday morning. Pucks and Potables, our hockey and flyers podcast. You can find them on Twitter at PucksPPN. They are bringing you all your Flyers content, the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, currently sitting at 1-1 one one in their series with the Montreal Canadiens. Make sure to check them out and follow them on Twitter. And our movie podcast, Popcorn and Potables, is on Twitter at PopcornPPN for all things movies and beer. For news, blog posts, info on breweries we've worked with, and much, much more, check out www.processpotables.com. Process Potables is on tap. Cheers, everybody. Good afternoon, everybody, or good morning, depending on when you are listening to this. For us, it is little afternoon on Saturday. This is episode 68 of Process Potables. Can the garbage Sixers strike gold in the playoffs? My name is Dan, joined as always by Steve. Steve, Saturday afternoon, we both had our, our fiesta monsters to start our day. Yeah. And now we're on to drinking some delicious beers. I've got... The IPA number two from our friends Eight and Sand, a classic, a staple, delicious beer. What do you What do you got there? I got the Danky Junior IPA. Uh, again, beautiful can art. We we always have a deep appreciation for beautiful uh, can art. Absolutely, this is a take on. I this has to be the first Donkey Kong, like the arcade version, right? right? Yeah, something yeah, like so, that. So, uh, it really, really that cool. retro Mario Donkey Kong kind of look. Your 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 platformer NES platformer. Yes, from our so. friends at Glastown Brewing Delicious in Millville, beer. New Jersey. We we definitely got to get down there. Uh, quarantine put a big halt on on us getting to places, but they, I'm a big fan of their beers, especially their Big Breakfast, uh, one of my absolute favorite beers of all time. So. Hoping to get down there soon. But today we are talking everything Sixers Celtics as that series is set to begin. We've expected that would be the case for a while, so we've kind of, you know, teased at it and 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 made some conversation, made some topics already on prior episodes, but now we get to deep dive knowing that that is exactly what it's going to be. Starting Monday at 6:30 p.m. will be game one. It alternates every day, so Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. Uh, Wednesday and Friday are 6.30 as well. Sunday is 1 in the afternoon. Just so you know, we will have pods for you after games 2 and 4, and then we'll kind of go from there and see what the schedule looks like, and depending on on the series situation, how we're going to handle from there. But we'll recap games 1 and 2 for you Wednesday night, so you can hear that on Thursday, and we will recap games 3 and 4 and the series to that point Sunday night so that it is in your feed for Monday morning along with our pals, Power Bombs and Potables. 
for this episode, we paired up with our friends Garbage Into Gold so that we had a little bit of a roundtable going down the list. Uh, for uh, My friend, Brandon Apter, you can follow him on Twitter at BAPTER23. His co-host, Jesse Larch, is on Twitter at Jesse Larch. Brandon takes the wheel and guides us through a, a plethora of questions and topics regarding the Sixers-Celtics series. It's a lot of fun. We literally just wrapped it up, so... Uh, I think it's a really great listen. I think it's a lot of fun. We got it done in, in a little over an hour, so it, it's to the point. A lot of great points made. You'll get our predictions. You'll get matchup ideas. You'll get X factors for the series. Uh, talks about Brett Brown and and what happens with him depending on how the series goes, and and much much more. So we'll dive right into it again. Uh, shout out to Garbage Into Gold for for hooking up with us and getting this episode done. Follow them on Twitter at Garbage Into Gold. Subscribe to their podcast, the whole nine. They are on all listening platforms, as are we. And if you are a Garbage Into Gold listener who ha- has tuned over to us from listening to them, we appreciate it and thanks for checking this out. And here it is, our Sixer Celtics preview with Garbage Into Gold. What's going on, everybody? Welcome into an extremely awesome crossover episode that you didn't know that you needed until right now. My name is Brandon After, one of the hosts of Garbage Into Gold, joined by my co-host Jesse Larch, and also the crew over at Podcast Potables, Dan and Steve. Fellas, how are you doing? We're just a couple of days away from Sixers playoff basketball here. Excited to talk about it. Yeah, I'm excited, especially after last night's game. They uh, they uh, blew out the Rockets, which I didn't see coming, especially in the first half. So uh, I definitely feel much more positive and, uh, well, a little more positive, I should say, going uh, into Boston. So I feel great, and my mental health is at an all-time high because I skipped the last two games. So I don't <laughs> have any frame of reference for what they've done. Because as soon as it was locked in that they were going to be facing Boston, I decided to completely tune out and reset my state of mind and go into this with, uh, you know, clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose, even though they they very well could lose, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't know what my uh, optimism levels are at this point. I'm, you know, I mentioned on our most recent episode how beaten down this team has made me. So I'm kind of just happy to be here, <laughs> and then we'll see. Uh, how much they disappoint us in the next round. See, that's why we also yeah. discuss beer on a podcast. Yeah. That definitely helps beer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I guess just to start off with things here, uh, you know, the Sixers and Celtics split their – no, they did not split there. See how prepared I am for this. The Sixers won the season series 3-1. to one. Um, So going into this series, the Sixers have a little bit of an advantage, but then they're at that disadvantage because Ben and Simmons will not be there on the defensive end of things or the offensive end of things. Joel Embiid might have a bum hand because we can't have nice things around here. We got to see uh, a lot of different players hit the court for the Sixers, and we got to see what the starting lineup would likely be. A Shake Milton Richardson, Harris, uh, Horford, and B lineup. Now against a team like the Celtics, that might be the most ideal starting five. So, uh, Dan, I'll start with you. Uh, What do you expect the Sixers starting lineup to be in game one, and what would your ideal starting lineup be? I'm glad you asked the second part of that with this, Brandon, because I was pretty much going to jump right into it anyway, because I'm guessing based on what we saw last night that you're going to get that same starting lineup with Shake Milton at point guard and Al Horford at the power forward, shifting Tobias down to small forward, 
Josh Richardson shooting guard and beat at center. And I wouldn't normally take any single game for you know what you're going to do going forward, especially a meaningless game and the last game of this kind of you know ramp up period for the playoffs. But with that game not meaning anything and them still playing all those guys in that game, starting them and having them play, you know, for at least the first half, you know, their their significant minutes. I think there was a point to that. I don't think that that was was a trivial exercise. I think Brett wanted that lineup to get some run to to gel together just a little bit, being that that's been one of the storylines for the Sixers all year is never having the same lineup, never being able to build any chemistry with guys rotating in and out. So I think that that's what they're going to to go out with to start Monday night against the Celtics. But I wrote a article for us at processpotables.com that you can check out if you haven't already projecting lineups and rotations and things like that based on two situations. This was a few days ago now. One was in the event that Embiid didn't return because we didn't know what the status uh, of him was after he left the Portland game last Sunday. And the other one was if we inevitably matched up with the Celtics, which looked like the case at the time and obviously is now, and Embiid did return. And in my opinion, and nothing has changed of this in the in the game since then, I'm not really sure where I'm at with Shake Milton anymore specifically. And I don't really like the Horford matchup for against anybody, you know, in particular for Boston. So I really think that you need to play a lot more of Matisse Seibel and Glenn Robinson the third than you have seen based on all the wings and, and isolation players that the Celtics are gonna roll out there with Jalen Brown and and Jason Tatum and Campbell Walker and Gordon Hayward so on and so forth. So I would probably start Matisse, and I think I would do that over Horford. And because I think Matisse can definitely guard somebody on the Celtics better, I I actually would like the idea of Matisse guarding Kemba Walker the best, and that creates kind of a situation there with with Shake. But the other thing that I had mentioned in that article, and this is the last thing I'll say for this, and Steve, if you want to pick up... uh, I, I kind of like the idea, especially if we're talking about defensive matchups, I really like the idea of rolling a lineup with Josh, Matisse, and Glenn Robinson the third out there with Tobias and Embiid. The problem with that lineup is offensively, who is your point guard? It, it's probably Josh Richardson, and that experiment has been pretty lackluster and underwhelming this season. But with Boston's ball pressure, especially with a guy like Marcus Smart who can harass anybody with the best of them, you know, we've we've seen real nightmare scenarios of Shake bringing the ball up, and you know, Howell Neto's played well lately, but I don't really want him on the floor against Boston because he can't guard any of them. So I think I would take my lumps with Josh running my point, especially uh, at the end of the game. Which in that article, I set my my basically the last five minutes of the game. I have a lineup of Josh Richardson, Matisse Thybulle, Glenn Robinson the third, Tobias Harris, and Joel Embiid. I think that's my closing lineup. Uh, barring any any substantial changes. Uh, the only outlier of that would be I would put Alec Burks in at any time where I am down a few points because Alec Burks is probably the best scorer on the team right now. Yeah, and I, I just uh, agreed a lot of what, what Dan said. One thing I can kind of see is because we, we kind of have to be honest whether you agree with it or not, that Brett Brown's coaching for his job. Um, and we did see uh, two years ago, 2018, uh, when the Sixers are down, you know, 3-1 uh, to one to the Celtics, he took uh, Covington out of the lineup and started TJ. Uh, so I wouldn't sur- 
be surprised if we see Brett make a move like that with the starting lineup. I think that, you know, especially if he's coaching for his job and if they're down in a series against Celtics, hopefully he makes a move like that sooner rather than later. Um, And I don't know if we'll see Shake Milton out of the starting lineup, but I do kind of see a scenario where over the course of the game, he just might not play as much as, say, an Alec Burks. Um, I kind of got that idea last night because, I mean, early in the fourth quarter, Shake Milton was still playing in the game. So that tells me if Brett's given him that kind of run that deep in a meaningless game, you know, Brett's probably contemplating whether he really uh, trusts Shakes for that many minutes, especially coming a playoff game. And, and it kind of tells you that he's not really afraid to lose him. Right. In a sense. Yeah. That's so, interesting. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. And uh, I have here what you said earlier, you know, putting in Matisse over Horford. You know, if the Celtics play the Sixers hand and force them to play smaller, uh, I, you're going to have to get Horford out of there. Uh, he may struggle against Tatum, especially if he has a game where he goes off. And, uh, you know, seeing Matisse, you know, he'll be important because he can defend, you know, Pretty much they're one through four, you know, whether it's Kemba Walker Walker through, um, you know, Jason Tatum, he'll be, uh, you know, used in a lot of ways. So, Jesse, after hearing what they have to say about the lineup, uh, what would your lineup be, and what do you think uh, is one of the matchups that perhaps the Sixers might be able to exploit if they were to alter their starting lineup? So I think just in the best interest of the Sixers at this point is to keep Al Horford coming off the bench, at least to start the games. Not that, like, Embiid and Horford have shown over the last few games they can coexist pretty well. But it's more so that after Embiid and Horford at the four and the five, who's really there? Like, Mike Scott's playing well, but, you know, do you really want Mike Scott playing 22, 24 minutes a night at this stage? Um I would probably have Horford coming in as the backup five, some crossover with Embiid in there too. But just to kind of make sure you have the depth, let uh, Tobias Harris start at the four, you know, keep Shake and Josh Richardson at the one and the two, and then at the three, I'm between either Korkmaz or Thibel because they're just polar opposites, right? Korkmaz gives you the scoring, the quick trigger, and then you have Thibel who makes up all of that defense. And really I think that's going to be the problem for the Sixers in the series is, you know, how do they balance the lineup? Because when they had Ben Simmons out there, they did have a guy who could defend five positions and kind of, you know, solve matchups with that with that versatility. Right now, they don't have anyone that can both score or pass or make the offense, you know, a better offense while also contributing to the defense. So I think it's going to be a real, like, tightrope act for Brett Brown to figure out which lineups to put out there to kind of, get the most points on the board, but also limit the amount of points Boston is scoring. Um, and what was the second part of that question? Uh, I guess if the Sixers go with their current lineup, if they have Horford or if even they make a change with like a Seibel, what do you think um, starting lineup or bench wise, what sort of matchup do you think that they'd be able to try and exploit? So I think their best bet is get it inside the paint to Embiid. I mean, I'm sure it's been said in my, like, that's what everyone talks about whenever they look at the Sixers is how dominant Embiid can be. But honestly, who on Boston is going to stop Embiid inside the paint? Daniel Thyssen and his cancer cannot defend him. You know, if they double team him, Embiid's been showing he's improving at passing out of double teams. 
So I think that's really the Sixers' only hope is, you know, he's the franchise player for a reason, and he's going to have to prove it against Boston. Yeah, I mean, just listening to what all you guys have to say, I echo so many of the sentiments because as we've seen with Brent Brown, it's one of those scenarios where he's adjusted. Steve, like you said, he put in TJ McConnell and pulled uh, Covington in that series a couple of years ago. So I think he's going to need to have that quick trigger to be able to make adjustments because uh, against the lineup of Walker, Brown, Tatum, Hayward, I think all of us pretty much agree that Al Horford is probably not the best idea to put out there. And while you guys are going more towards the Seibel, um, Robinson sort of thing, see, for me, I just worry about the Sixers holding leads. So the defensive side of things for me goes more towards the end of the game or maybe the third beginning of the fourth quarter. For me, I just want to score as much as we possibly can at the beginning of the game. So I'm, I'm a thought process and the mindset where – um, I try to find a way to get Alec Burke into the starting lineup, given he's a big, big scoring punch off the bench. Um, but even if Shake starts the game with Alec Burke coming in that first substitution, I think getting him in there, Dan, like you said, he's just one of their best scorers, if not their best uh, guard scorers. So I think you got to try to get him out there early, especially if you find yourself down if Tatum or Brown gets the hot hand. So, um, Going to the other side of things. Well, can I say something real quick before we move yeah, on? Because, yeah, yeah. uh, Jesse, you made a really great point that, that I want to echo as far as Horford not starting. And uh, to that point, it, it is it is not as much of an indictment against Horford. It is really important that he is the backup five, which is another reason that I, I also kind of like the idea of him not starting. Because, one, I want him to play every minute at center that Embiid doesn't. So you figure... Let's say Embiid plays 34 minutes a game safely. That's already 14 minutes you're giving to Al Horford just as the backup five. He's going to play more than 14, so you're going to pair them together. But you don't need to do it at the start. And unfortunately, this is a reality we have to come to terms with. If you if you go in with preparing and setting the strategy that you're going to start them and you're going to focus on their minutes together, and Horford is also the backup five, what happens when Embiid inevitably goes down or misses half a game or sits out one game mm-hmm. and you have to switch your whole strategy to Horford as the starting center? It it puts so many things that fluctuate into place that don't necessarily need to happen if you're already working with the idea that you're coming out with an Embiid-led lineup and then moving to a Horford-style lineup. And Brandon, to your point with Burks, I mean, I think we all probably agree that we want Burks to see as much time as possible, but my concern with starting him, although he's absolutely on fire right now and probably deserves it, is that I mean, I definitely want to come out of the gate swinging, but that's why I have Joel Embiid and he's always that first guy, and I want to feed him early. I want Burks to play every single minute that Embiid isn't playing as well so that I know I can score. And my thought process basically was as far as looking at the, the main three people I'm looking at in this series to be my leaders are Richardson, Harris, and Embiid. So I want to make sure that, you know, at some point, I really don't want to not have Joel Embiid or Tobias Harris on the floor. And ideally, like, at the very least, you have to have one of Josh Richardson, Tobias Harris, or Embiid out there. And so, basically, I would make sure that Alec Burks is... I'm doing the same thing with Burks that I am with Horford. I'm making sure he plays every minute Josh Richardson doesn't, and then I'm finding all his other areas of opportunity 
to play as well, whether that's replacing Shake Milton as the point guard, whether that's out there with a bunch of other guards and figuring it out. Like that that's that's not my biggest concern. I don't think there's gonna be I don't think Brett's gonna have a hard time finding places to play Burks, but I definitely think you need his scoring as the supplement to guys like Embiid and Tobias rather than putting him out there with all the other big scorers and not needing all that firepower at once. Yeah. I think it's just for me what like the I, I don't expect Burks to start unless like Shake Milton goes down with an injury with which hopefully doesn't happen. But uh, I guess it just for me it goes all back to hoping Brett Brown has somewhat of a quick trigger finger. Like if Shake is not able yeah. to defend or, or can't get anything started or is getting shook by a defender, uh, then I think he needs to be able to, you know, quickly be able to pull him and either talk to him and hope it gets better or just immediately sub- substitute a Burks or somebody else because Josh Richardson has looked a lot better in the bubble, but I certainly don't uh, feel 100% comfortable with his scoring ability because of its inconsistent latency throughout the season and through some games in the bubble. So again, there's just a lot, there's so much unknown. And that's why like thinking, I know we're going to make our predictions later, but thinking of a prediction is kind of tough because if we see the starters like we saw against the Houston Rockets last night, then I feel good. Right. But if we saw what we saw the first couple games, I'm not really too sure. And and, that, and and I mean, Steve made the best point, I think. I mean, Brett's coaching for his job, so I definitely, I'm not worried about, I, I think one of our biggest complaints uh, on, on this side, being very big Brett Brown defenders for the most part, has been the fact that he waits too long to make adjustments. He's capable, he's smart, he, he can do them, he just always waits too long, and he, he definitely is feeling the pressure right now, so I think that at least we're going to be, no matter what happens, I think we're going to be able to look back and say, well, you know, Brett pulled the triggers, Brett made the changes, they may not work, you know, that's a very yeah. real possibility, but I don't think, I'm hoping, and I don't think that we're going to look back at this series and say, Brett waited too long to do this. I think we'll at least be able to say, listen, I mean, he saw something that wasn't working and he changed it. That didn't work either because, you know, the Celtics were just that good or we just didn't have it or, you know, either case really, or just, you know, without Ben Simmons, nothing was enough. Yeah. So, I mean, you you look at the Sixers side of things and like Jesse said, the obvious go-to uh, at the start of the game would be to try to feed and feed, and hopefully he can get back to where he looked earlier in the bubble with passing out of bubble teams and finding uh, uh, double teams, not bubble teams. Sorry about that. But uh, uh, hopefully he'll be able to pass out of double teams a little more quickly. I know he was having some hand issues. So going to that Embiid option early in the game and have having him uh, try and get that dominant presence down in the paint early is really, really important. Uh, there's also, you know, you could see Tobias Harris and uh, Gordon Hayward matching up against each other. And I think Tobias Harris's vision has looked a lot better um, uh, with regard to passing and finding open teammates. He's not hesitating as much as he used to, but going to the other side of things, I feel like everybody on the Celtics roster, maybe aside from Daniel Tice has not has, has burned the Sixers at one point or another. I can't count on one hand, how many 40-point games Kemba Walker had against the Sixers as a member of the Hornets. Uh, you know, Jalen Brown has had solid games. Tatum has had games that make us regret picking Markel, uh, even uh, after, even before all of this Markel stuff happened. Um, and then you have Gordon Hayward, who can easily go off for 20, 25 points a game. So, Steve, I'll ask you this question. What matchup do you think the Celtics will try to exploit on their side of the ball? 
So primarily, I think the matchup they're going to try to exploit is Kemba versus Shake. Uh, now you can make the argument both Kemba Walker and Shake are playing in the in, in the playoffs for the first time of their careers, um, and I think that's probably going to be a talking point people may bring up. But in a neutral venue, where personally I don't think you know the having the home team crowd noise and all that stuff, I don't think that's really going to make an impact. Um, I don't see Kemba Walker, you know, being how long he's played in the league and how successful he's been. I don't really see him having any kind of playoff jitters, or maybe that can be something with Shake, uh, you know, with how young he is. Um, and it's just like you said, Brandon, like Kemba Walker just has that ability to put up 40 easy points. Um, so I can see that Kemba Walker being a little overwhelming for shake. And the other thing too, is this isn't like a matchup, uh, between any particular one or two players, but we've seen in the past, Brad Stevens just had no problem exploiting JJ Redick on defense with how bad he was. Um, and I could see him maybe not picking on one player in particular, but, uh, you know, I could see him doing that with Korkmaz or even, uh, you know, like, God forbid, they had to pull out Raul Neto. And even Matisse Thibault, as great as Matisse is on defense, he has been prone to make some errors on offense, especially with passing the ball. Uh, so I think, you know, Brad Stevens, who just signed an extension the other day, I can really see him trying to take advantage of any uh, defensive liabilities on the Sixers end. Yeah, I think just looking at it, a lot of us would agree that the Celtics probably have more matchups to exploit than the Sixers do. So it's important that the Sixers find what matchup is best to exploit early on and, and do that as much as they can. Um Jesse, uh, when you look at this roster, uh, not just the starting lineup of the Boston Celtics, but you know their their bench. You have Marcus Smart. You have a lot of unproven guys there. With uh, Grant Williams, Robert Williams has been playing a lot of backup uh, center for them. Uh, how do you think it matches up bench wise with the Sixers, who have might might have some weaker defenders on the bench with guys like Corkmaz, uh, Burks, etc. So I think the Sixers are going to be relying on a lot of double-digit scoring performances from the bench to survive in this series, um, be it Burks, Robinson, Scott, Corkmeth, any of those guys. Like, There's no doubt the Sixers will be looking for balanced scoring versus the Celtics, who will probably get most of their scoring from like Kemba, Jalen Brown, and Jason Tatum. Um, with that said, I mean, I've said many times on other episodes that I love Marcus Smart. I think he's a complete disruptor. Um, if he could be on the Sixers, even though he has very poor shot selection, with that said, he makes up for it with how much he agitates other teams and how good he is defensively. So I think he, in his own right, is a problem. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see what Robert Williams does. I know I liked him when he came out of college a couple years ago, and he hasn't really gotten too much playing time, but with the situation that Boston has in the front court, with it being, you know, Ennis Cantor, not a great defender, um, Daniel Tice is just like, I don't know why he gets so many minutes. I guess he does what Brad Stevens wants, but he's not someone who really impresses me. So I think there's room for Robert Williams to come in as the four and a five to really make an impact in this series. Will he? That remains to be seen. But I think in terms of like X factors, he's going to be a guy that can really turn the tides if he comes out and has good performances. Certainly. I think that, uh, a lot of the things that we have talked about 
are are very important. But one thing with the bubble that we've spoken about probably on each of our respective podcasts prior to the bubble beginning is the the neutral court. You know, it, we've gotten to see the digital fans that we've seen the benches getting into it. But this is going to be a Boston Sixers series like we've never seen before. There's not going to be that home court advantage in Boston. There's not going to be the home court advantage in Philadelphia uh, when they go back there for other game. when they would have hypothetically gone back there for other games. So we're on this neutral site. You know, the Sixers have guys on their team that really feed off the crowd, as I'm sure the Celtics do as well. So, Dan, I'll pose the next question to you. Uh, looking at how each team performed in the bubble, the Celtics and the Sixers, uh, do you think the neutral court favors one team either way? And if so, why? So my answer is is mixed here because I don't know if my answer technically makes it that it favors either one. If I have to lean, I'm guessing it favors the Celtics. And because of the fact the Celtics didn't care if they were at home or on the road. They were 26 and 10 at home, 22 and 14 on the road. So, so pretty even and a good team either way. We all know about the Sixers elite at home, 31 and four, but God awful on the road, 12 and 26. The, the thing I found interesting when I was, when I was trying to do some research for this episode was that, you know, I'm, I'm looking, I know people were saying, and I think this, this may have changed uh, by percentage points either way, but people were saying how, you know, we were a worse road team than the Knicks. And, like, that really stung. Obviously, the Knicks are a terrible team, and we were supposed to be, you know, aspiring for a championship. Did you know that the Miami Heat were 15-22 and 22 on the road and 29-7 and seven at home? But nobody said a damn word hmm. about how bad the Heat were on the road. They just got praised all season for how great they were and how Jimmy Butler wakes up at 3 a.m. every day for 8 o'clock tip-offs. Um, but I digress. I think that it hurts the Sixers to not have any games at the Wells Fargo Center, but being the sixth seed, you would have been on the road more anyway, and the Sixers, to me, really had a much harder time playing at TD Garden than the advantage they got at home historically in the past couple years of these teams, so it's probably pretty, you know, balanced either way, but I actually think that not going to Boston for three to four games may actually be more beneficial than having two to three games at the Wells Fargo Center. And it doesn't help that uh, if you were to watch the game on Zoom and appear on the, you know, on the big screens that they can't hear you. So, yeah, you know, that, that was a if whole they heard other... you booing, uh, you know, Tatum or Kemba Walker, that would have really helped. But that was such a weird experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So bad. I think it could go either way, really. Uh, I'm looking forward to the playoff playoff atmosphere with regard to being able to hear what the players say. Uh, We've seen uh, Boston and Philadelphia really get into it over the past few years, whether it be regular season or in-game. Jesse, this was one topic that you and I talked about a lot. Do you have any thoughts as to whether it favors one side or the other? I mean, I think... The Sixers are, like, god-awful not in front of their home crowd, but I also do think, like uh, the other guys were just saying, that when the Sixers went into TD Garden, they hardly ever had a productive game. So there's two sides of that coin. I think at this point everyone's kind of adjusted to, you know, being in this weird environment. Uh, I don't know what Boston's performance was in the bubble. If anyone does, I'd appreciate that, but... I mean, overall, I still think Boston's probably the better team. I think the Sixers, especially with the injuries they've encountered since being in the bubble, 
are really in an uphill battle. So I think, I think like the lack of, you know, firepower that the Sixers came in with versus what they have now between nagging injuries, guys just flat out out at this point. Um, I don't, I don't love the Sixers' chances, and I think that's just one more thing stacked against them as they can't play in front of their home fans. Boston went 5-3 so and three in the bubble, but the uh, yeah. the, they lost their last game, which didn't matter, so I would probably really call it 5-2. and two. And So they were pretty good in there. The uh, The other thing I thought of while Jesse was speaking, and, and he made great points as well, but the other thing uh, is that knowing how Sixers fans are, and especially at home, is that <laughs> You know, if Boston has a bad performance at the Garden, like one bad performance, I don't think that they would really get that much heat, especially being the favorite and their history versus the Sixers. But especially with the Sixers on of a bunch of unproven guys and guys that I think have short leashes, I mean, there's a very good chance that even in game one, well, I guess, you know, game three would have been at the Wells Fargo Center that, you know, our crowd would have very easily turned on this team as well. So not having that uh, impact any of these guys, I think might actually be a blessing in disguise as well. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, Dan. Although one thing I will miss is because a lot of times you see him be just kind of playing off the crowd. Like if he makes a big play, you know, he raises up the hands and he's like, all right, let's go. Um, so him <clears> – <throat> sorry, guys. Uh, so him not having that does kind of suck, but I will tell you kind of what uh, Jesse was hinting at earlier. You know, it could just take Marcus Smart, you know, one foul or one technical or – getting him under Embiid's skin just enough for Embiid to just, like, kind of turn it up. So I think as long as there's something there for – because Embiid's a very emotional player. He wears his emotions on the sleeves. If there's, you know, th- that mark is smart or just something else that's, you know, picking at his nerves, I could see that, you know, the, the whole fan thing in, you know, not playing in front of fans isn't going to really be much of an impact. And that's the problem is Embiid feeds off the crowd, but he's the only one on this team. I think Ben would too, but we don't have him. So if yeah. we had Ben, I might think a little differently. But when I look at the main guys that are going to go out there, Embiid's the only one that I believe could feed off either crowd. And so if we're looking at the rest of our team, I think they're all better off not dealing with what will likely be a very Negadelphia crowd at home and a very raucous crowd at TD Garden as well. Yeah, and and Dan, you brought up something that I wanted to bring up at some point. You know, we haven't really talked about Ben Simmons much at all. We saw the Sixers uh, a couple of games without Ben Simmons after he had to uh, have surgery, and you know they they looked pretty good. I'm not in the trade Ben crowd. Don't. Don't get me uh, – don't, don't misunderstand like me it. here. I do not want to trade Ben Simmons but, mm-hmm. for like a Lillard or, mm-hmm. or a Devin Booker but, type but. player that I know will make them better. But, but. Uh, you know, we're, we're facing a series here with, uh, you know, arguably the best or second best defender on, on the Sixers. But on the other side of things, I feel like I've noticed over the last few games that he hasn't been in there that the spacing has been better and – some support roles, even in guys like Josh Richardson, guys have looked a little bit more confident and a little bit more comfortable out there. So, um, you know, Dan, since you brought up Ben Simmons, I'll ask you first, do you think that the Sixers have a better chance on the offensive end of things without him out there because of how they've looked? Absolutely not. Uh, I think it's a ludicrous, ludicrous question. Uh, I think you're clearly lying. <laughs> I think you obviously want him out of here based on everything you just said, and you're incredibly wrong. Uh, ben Simmons is is everything about this team getting into the flow of things, even with the experiment of Shake Milton at point guard, which didn't really work anyway. 
I think I think that was proven, and that's not a knock on the idea of having somebody else run the point other than Ben, which I was in favor of, but Shake did not appear to be that guy in the short stint and off season to develop it more could, could prove otherwise. But for now is not the case and definitely doesn't give you the best chance to win right now. Uh, ben was proving even as the guy not bringing the ball up the court as much that he was still an, an incredible facilitator. He was having close to triple doubles almost every game working out, out of that position on the elbow frequently where they were basically initiating their offense through him there instead of bringing it up, which I loved, other than when they just kept forcing it there when the other team, you know, would take it away and whatnot. But And the other thing is that I know that people will say not having Ben out there allows you to have another shooter, and that's true. And clearly pretty much anybody out there is going to be a better shooting threat than Ben Simmons at this point. But... The idea of having a better shooter and the idea of spacing are two different things because while Ben Simmons doesn't create spacing via his shooting, he creates spacing for everybody via the threat that he is, via his way to penetrate a defense, to drive to the rim, and and the attention that he draws, especially when they're putting him down on the block or in the dunker spot or even on that elbow because you can't leave him there. You can leave him if he's standing behind the arc, but you can't leave him anywhere else because he's a bucket. He will absolutely finish. And so, you know, the idea of having another shooter out there seems great in theory, but those guys aren't going to get near the good looks they would if Ben Simmons was on the court. So I, I don't think it's good for anybody. The only positive to it on offense, if you need to find one, is that the biggest issue sometimes is, you know, uh, spacing around the rim for Joel Embiid. So not having Ben out there will at least create a, a lot less, you know, clogged situations for Embiid. And it helps Embiid work out of the double team, which is something Jesse mentioned earlier that, that he's improved on, which a lot of that was because of the fact that he was often out there with guys that he could actually get the ball to that would take the shot. So that's the, the small silver lining, but it, it by no way outfits all of the, the net positives that Ben brings to a team on offense, not even mentioning his defense. Yeah, I do kind of see where you're going there, Brandon, especially in a half-court offense uh, when you have the team that has the most post-ups by far in the league and you have Horford, Simmons, and Embiid all like to play a post-up game at times, and that does crowd the spacing and everything. But like just everything Dan said, it you know, what Simmons brings to the table definitely outweighs any issues with the spacing. Um, and not to mention on the other end of the uh, court, you know, you're getting a guy who before his injuries wasn't a talk for defensive player of the year. So I don't think it's as big of an yeah. issue now. And uh, I believe Jesse said earlier that uh, Embiid and Horford seem to have coexist in space and isn't as much as, of an issue as it was earlier in the season. Perhaps it was a ludicrous question, Dan, but either way, you called me ludicrous and we'll be skipping your opinion for the next five questions. So congratulations. <laughs> um, wow, tough crowd. So moving along, uh, since we talked about uh, the effect that Ben Simmons not being there on defense would be, we have three guys uh, at guard and wing for the Boston Celtics in Kemba Walker. Jalen Brown and, and Jason Tatum that all have the ability to burn defenders. There's there's no way around that. So, Jesse, I'll pose the question to you first. Ideally for you, throughout this series, 
Uh, we'll go starter and on the bench because I feel like it's not going to be one guy for the entire time. So if there's one or two guys that you would prefer to have on each of these guys, you can mention it then. But what, who is your ideal defender against guys like Walker, Brown, and Tatum? Um, Richardson on Kemba, for sure. Then probably Matisse on Tatum. And, yeah, Brown's a tough one. So it's just not really... There's, like, no one at the one I want on Kemba. Like, Richardson's the only guy that I think could possibly hang with him. And then Tatum scares me more than Brown in terms of scoring, so I want Matisse there. And then I guess maybe to put Matisse on Brown and maybe Tobias on uh, Tatum. But there's really not three. There's not a third guy that, like, can go out there and really lock someone down. Yeah, I think uh, if you if you see Horford out there in the starting lineup, it's going to be a little bit more interesting to see as well. Uh, Steve, how about you? What are your thoughts on who should defend these three guys? So I'm kind of uh, I agree with Jesse a lot on who you know having Richardson on Kemba and having Matisse on Tatum. Um, I think as a result, if you see those kind of matchups, you'll see Shake going against Jalen Brown. I think Shake might be able to handle him a little bit there. Shake's not that much smaller than Jalen Brown. Uh, but I will say, uh, barring health issues, I mean, maybe seeing Glenn Robinson the third on uh, Tatum, like that's a matchup that you may have to see, be it that someone's in foul trouble or needs a rest at some point during the game. Um, he may be maybe not an X factor, but if his uh, left hip isn't an issue, someone that could possibly make a difference. Um, I've kind of written about leading up to the playoffs about how there's a chance that Matisse and Glenn Robinson III could be battling each other for playoff minutes or being in another, so to speak, mini tournament, as Brett Brown has had in the past. I don't think that's the case, but um, I think, you know, given our limited options on defense, I I could see uh, uh, Glenn Robinson III or even uh, seeing a Mike Scott on um, Jason Tatum might not be the worst thing either because he's kind of proved to me in the past few games. He's been uh, been able to hang with guys a little bit, and he's been much more aggressive and, uh, you know, on a defensive end. So it w- w- – It'll be interesting to see. I can't, I can't, I can't sit here anymore and take this. And and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you guys some, uh, some crap after I crack open this delicious eight and sand number two IPA. Here's the folly for you, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, swig of beer for the working man. Amen. But you cannot put Matisse Stiebel on Jason Tatum. That is an absolute death sentence. I don't know what you guys think Matisse Stiebel is, but he he cannot handle that matchup. There's not a chance in hell that I would allow that to happen for one second. I I think Matisse is going to have to play a big role in defending Kemba. And, I mean, it's scary thinking about Matisse covering any of these guys because we've seen him get in foul trouble pretty quickly, and he's also quite the gambler. But you just need his speed and athleticism and I don't think Josh Richardson can handle that matchup for that long. I think they're going to share it, so Josh is going to do it as well. But I think you can bring Matisse in to lighten that that workload for Josh, and then you can put him on you know, a Smart or a Hayward or even a Jalen Brown. I think he can handle any of those at times and almost you know t- give himself a rest for when he has to go back to Kemba because – Kemba definitely scares me in this series, despite his his kind of lack of production against us as a Celtic compared to when he was a Hornet. The, the Tatum matchup is what scares me the most, because I don't know if there's an answer for him. 
I think Tobias is going to have to deal with it to start. Um, but if we're looking at that starting lineup that we all think they'll go with, even if it's not our ideal one, then I, I, I think he's going to be on Jalen Brown, and I think Horford or Embiid are going to get Tatum. Now, Embiid has actually matched up with Tatum before and has looked okay, but, you, I mean, you can't make that a primary matchup for a series like this either because Embiid's just going to get worn down and probably blow a knee out again. So that scares me a little bit, um, but that's really tough. I think I think Jesse was kind of hinting at this idea uh, in a way, and I agree with you there that I, I'm probably picking, like if you have to pick your poison between these three, I'm probably going to put, you know, who I think is my worst matchup on Jalen Brown and see if he can be the guy that beats me. I'm not getting beat by Kemba Walker and Jason or Jason Tatum if I have any say in it. So I'm going to do what I have to, to to stop those two the best that I can. And if Jalen Brown goes for 30 on me every night, then like, I think I just have to live with that. Yeah. I feel like we hear Brett do that. Like how, like which way do you want to live? You know, do you let one guy beat you and then, see see what else happens and you live with that sort of so that's definitely a mindset that i didn't think about but dan i'll I'll add this to the mix here and i'm not sure if you or anybody else on the pod has has mentioned it but um especially against a team that has guys like walker brown and tatum that that can hit you you know we haven't even talked about gordon hayward that can hit from mid-range hit from beyond the arc as well um any thoughts um, to maybe trying out a zone defense, or do you think that they have practiced a zone defense for something like this? Because I feel like it, it could potentially benefit them uh, when they're going up, up against a lineup like this. I'm, I'm really glad you asked that, Brandon, because I, I, and that's not even on our list, but it's something that, that I've had in mind. And Steve was watching the game last night, which, which I didn't, obviously, but I saw him on Twitter say, you know, is it me or do the Sixers look like they're playing a zone defense? And I wasn't even watching, but I know that Brett Brown was quoted as saying when Ben went out that they were going to have to change some of their defensive schemes and that there's a very good chance that they were going to have to implement at least some aspects of zone at some times based off of personnel. And when I was, you know, preparing for this and trying to figure out, you know, my solutions to how to defend those those three players specifically and and you can add in Gordon Hayward and Marcus Smart to that as well that you know that does tie into the pick your poison thing because there is no even in a hypothetical sense there's no good answer to how the Sixers deal with all of them and even in the best case scenario there's a very good chance that you know those guys are going to get theirs anyway they they are simply that talented all jokes aside i love to rip on the Celtics and and troll Boston fans as much as possible but the the reality at the end of the day truly is that that those guys are that good and and it's going to be difficult. I really do like the idea of them implementing some zone. The problem is is you know a lot of those guys their real bread and butter is shooting the three and being on the perimeter and I don't think that playing a traditional zone is, is going to take that away from them. I think it's going to allow them to fire and the Sixers best defense Ben Simmons or not I think ultimately is you know, playing man to man, and you're not going to lock them up man to man. But the idea behind this defense, since we've had Joel Embiid available, has always been funnel guys to him, and he drops and either forces you into like a floater or a mid range, or he blocks your shot at the rim. So if I'm the Sixers, I'm running them off the three point line, and if I'm going to allow them the angle to get by me, I'm forcing them to Embiid and and living that way. If they're going to hit mid range jumpers and floaters 
or or shoot a contested three. I'm again, it's one of those things you have to live with because people when they lose, there are the people that will complain about how they lost, but you have to understand that you know, it's the NBA and there's talent and guys are going to get there. So you ultimately have to concede something and live with the results. So if, if that's what we're doing, then I'm going to live with the results of letting these guys get by me as they inevitably will, but at least trying to force them to Embiid and, and you know, take the lowest percentage shot that I can hopefully force them into. So a zone seems like a good idea here and there just to switch it up, but I think that if they do too much of it, they will get torched. I think you have to live with playing man-to-man and forcing everybody to Embiid. And if there's one benefit, yeah, I think it, it depends on what what lineups are out there for me. If you have like a, a lineup that has like Burks and Korkmaz out there with Cybul, I feel like Korkmaz chasing around Marcus Smart or chasing around a Jalen Brown or Tatum, I feel like maybe they benefit from a zone, but True. I feel like it's going to be very situational. That, that's a great point. Yeah, when they when they get to their weaker defending bench lineups, it, it definitely would make a lot more sense than with the starters. So that that's a really great point. And I think the the one benefit to zone is that Embiid is going to sit back protecting the basket, and he's not going to be drawn up toward the top of the key because that's one thing I could see uh, Boston doing is trying to, you know, like, for instance, when they, you know, Daniel Tice is their starting center, he has a willingness to shoot it from three, and maybe they try to run the offense or any kind of screen and roll or pick and roll at the top of the key to draw Embiid away from the basket. So I think him uh, playing in the middle – uh, of his own defense will prevent him from pay- playing, you know, that far up and away from the basket. The thing that does scare me, and I kind of noticed this in last night's game, was that when they started to play zone, um, there's a couple times where Embiid was trailing behind Harden. I'm like, oh no, like, like why is Embiid playing Harden? Oh, okay, they're playing a zone. Um, again, like we said, this isn't something we want to see throughout the majority of the game. It's going to depend on personnel and matchups, but. Uh, if Embiid somehow has to pick up Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, uh, you know, and they go to the basket and Embiid's trailing behind them, that 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 potential does scare me. And to, real quick to your point with Tice, though, again, you know, to hammer this pick your poison thing, it 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 seems like he shoots the three really well against us. He's willing all the time, but for some reason, it seems like he hits him against us. But if you look at him, man, like he's he's a thirty four percent three point shooter in his career, thirty three percent this season. Like if that's what they're gonna try and go to, he can shoot them all day. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll absolutely give it to him. So if that's if that's what we force them into, that's a, that's a huge win, either way. Yeah, I, I certainly agree, and and we may as well stay on the subject of Joel Embiid uh, moving into the series. We know what's happened over the past few years. You know whether it was gastroenteritis, whether it was getting um, you know hit in the face by Markel's thoracic outlet. Or, um, you know, something else, his knee last year. So going into this, a lot of the Sixers' success or potential success uh, lays on on the back of Joel Embiid staying healthy. So, Jesse, uh, we'll lead off with you here. What, What are your expectations? What percentage do you think of this series that he plays? Um, and I guess to then piggyback off of that, uh, do you think the Sixers lineup with Embiid and Horford will force the Celtics to have to play big, or do you think the Sixers will then have to go small because of the Celtics' smaller lineup? So, two-part question. Uh, I'm going to be bold and say Embiid will play 100% of the series. I think the injuries he's had 
haven't necessarily been severe to the point where, like, if they were playoff games, he was probably playing. He wouldn't have missed that one game. He probably would have came back in the one game. Um, as far as if the Sixers would be forced to go big or small, I think they're going to be forced to go small. I think Brad Stevens is just too well-prepared and has Brett Brown's number that I can't see a scenario where Brett Brown's team imposes their will on the Celtics. Um, granted, this year they've fared better against the Celtics with the large lineups, but you know Ben Simmons is obviously an integral piece of that. So not having him and then relying on Al Horford to fill a bigger role in the bigger lineups I think really changes what the Sixers are going to be able to do. And honestly, we said earlier in the episode, I think the Sixers are better suited with Horford backing up Embiid. And, you know, we've acknowledged there will still be moments where they're on the court together because I think Horford will play up near 30 minutes a night or you're going to need him to. But he's going to have to play those backup five minutes for Embiid. So there is going to be times where you don't have them both on the court for, you know, significant stretches and you're going to have to go smaller and have guys that are out there spacing the floor and kind of running the offense Brett Brown's more accustomed to, honestly. And I do think we've seen some better efficiency at times in the offense with these smaller lineups. So I wouldn't be, you know, disappointed to see the Sixers go small. I do think that is kind of playing into the Celtics' hands, though. All right, Steve, what are your thoughts? Percentage face of Embiid to play in every game of the series? We have Jesse going all in, saying he's going to play all of the games, whether it's four, five, six, or seven. And, uh, what sort of lineup do you think the either team is going to have to play due to these exploited matchups? Sixers going to have to play smaller, or the Celtics going to have to play bigger? So as far as Embiid, because I have mental health issues, I definitely think, see him missing at least one game. Uh, yesterday, he was I think questionable leading up to the game, and everyone was so speculating, uh, you know, his wrist injury. But apparently, it was actually hit one of his ankles that was bothering him. That's what he was testing out before he played the game. So, I mean, listen, at this point of the year, everyone's dealing with some sort of small nagging injuries. I don't think the ankle or the hand is going to be enough to keep him beat out, but it just seems like with him it's it's, it's inevitable. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I could see him missing one game. Um, as far as uh, the lineup being bigger or smaller for us, I agree with Jesse that – they're likely going to force our hand and we're going to have to uh, play smaller uh, to Boston's lineup. I don't like in watching uh, yesterday's game. I had a thought um, early on. I'm like, I wonder if they'll play small like Houston and maybe have do something crazy like Gordon Hayward at the five, but that's definitely not going to happen. Um, but I, I think having both Embiid and Horford out on the floor, that's just going to, cause too many uh, mismatch issues and you know with how quick and just how good their their guards and wings are on the perimeter um, I don't see both Embiid and Horford playing on the floor at the same time for a lot of minutes so I think they're definitely going to be forced to play small all right Dan before we get to our predictions and x factor um, you know, you'll be the last one to weigh on in this topic. Uh, you've heard Steve, you've heard Jesse. What is your faith in, in Joel Embiid in this series? So, I don't, I don't really want to predict if he plays or not. I mean, I'm going to go in assuming that since he played last night and that he played Wednesday that, you know, he's healthy enough to go right now. Um, predicting him to, to suffer an injury in this series is, is, is trivial to me. 
it's really, you know, what do I believe he's capable of in this? What do I believe he'll he'll perform up to? You know, will he actually show up? He'll be on the court. But will he actually show up and, and be the franchise player we need him to be? I'd probably put that at about 75%. And, again, to go back to, you know, the process and Sam Hankey, you know, this is much more about, uh, you know, production versus, you know, the actual results. Um or, you know, results versus outcome and things like that, where if they lose this series, you know, that's one thing. They're they're expected to lose this series. Uh, it's been a rough season. Ben Simmons is out. We've seen poor chemistry. That is what it is. So even if you lose in, let's say they lose in five games, but if Embiid averages, you know, 29 and 12 with, you know, a block and a half a game, you know, plays 30-plus plays minutes, doesn't miss a game, and... There's no, there's not a bunch of routes. Then I think that's a huge sign for him. And at this point, based on this roster construction, and knowing that this this franchise loves turnover and not trusting anybody beyond him and Ben to be here all that long, I, I guess you can include Tobias in there, who I'm, I'm worried about much less than Embiid for what it's worth. Um, I, I think that at the very least what I want out of this series is to just see Joel Embiid look really good for however long it goes. Uh, you know, no single-digit games, no sitting out a half with a with a uh, aching pinky ring or, or, or pinky finger or whatever, you know, like nothing like that. You know, you break your leg, you break your leg. What are you going to do? But um, none of this nagging stuff, show up. Play don't don't succumb to bad double team turnovers and what and whatnot. You know if the rest of the team shoots thirty four percent from three and that's why you lose because you kicked it out and they didn't hit shots. Then that's not on you. You're making the right play. You know that that's really like my my silver lining for this in the event that they don't win. Which I'm not saying that they don't, but obviously that is the uh, realistic outcome. My 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 shining light in in believing in him is that. It's been a weird week for him where he leaves the game Sunday, which is scary, but he's out on the bench afterwards, and he looked like he was in a great mood, which gave me hope for the injury. Then everyone sits Tuesday, no big deal. Wednesday, I don't know what you guys thought, but the the little bits of that game that I did see, he didn't look like he was really happy to be out there. He looked miserable, sluggish. It, It really set a bad tone for me. And last night, I saw pictures of him smiling. It seemed like he had a really good time. Obviously, they were blowing them out, so I guess that helps. But, you know, my, my hope is that whatever he's been going through, all these ups and downs, which he's, he's talked about in interviews as well, uh, at least at this point, you know, you're in the playoffs. All this is over. All you have to do is go out there, you know, prepare for the same team, a set schedule. You, you have all these things that are no longer variables. Everything is pretty much set. I'm hoping that that really allows him to just, you know, focus up. And, you know, this whole franchise's uh, mantra for the whole year has been we're built for the playoffs. So now it's put up or shut up time. And I think that that applies to Joel Embiid more than any player uh, on either team in this series. It's just, just put up or shut up. We're, we're going to go into a couple of uh, quick hits here. Uh, before we wrap things up here for the episode. so We like to call those so quick about... sips, Brandon. We like to call those quick sips. Oh, Sorry, okay. cheap plug. Well, well, you didn't educate me about this before that episode, so that's, that's on you. Okay, guys. We'll, we'll, we'll turn your garbage education sips. to some gold right here. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's why I just said <laughs> quick sips. Okay? I learned quickly. So, these quick sips. 
we're going to go through all four of us um, on a couple of topics with regard to predictions, different players, um, the Brett Brown scenario. So the first round of, of quick sips that we'll do is X factors for both the Sixers and the Celtics. So we'll start with myself because I'm hosting and I have that kind wow. of power. We'll go with Steve, then Jesse, then Dan, and then we'll go back the other way as we go through right, uh, the quick sips. Okay. I like it. So to start off, uh, we'll start off with the Sixers and Celtics X factor. We'll group them in as one. Oh, so what for the me, to start off, the Sixers X factor for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go outside of the obvious Joel Embiid one. And I feel like the one for me is Josh Richardson. Damn it. His defense and uh, what we've seen from him offensively, that 34-point performance against Portland, he's looked good shooting from three uh, in other games in the bubble. So I think his offense and defense is going to be the Sixers' X factor in this because he's going to be charged with defending uh, Boston's best player, one of their best players. And I feel like his defense, wasn't there at the beginning of the bubble, and we've seen it progress to, to become a little bit of what it was earlier in the season. So I think Josh Richardson is the X factor for um, for the Sixers and the Celtics. This is a little weird, weird to say, but I, I'm just going to say that their X factor is going to be their centers. So I think Daniel Tice and Ennis Cantor, Robert Williams, they're going to have to find a way to beat Joel Embiid in order for the Celtics to have consistent success in this series. Ennis Cantor has showed that he can play against Joel Embiid, but Embiid is the obvious better player. But I feel like in order for the Celtics to get in some sort of consistent groove, seeing that they do have perimeter shooting, but I feel like they need to get that post game working as well and, and try to see what they can do down there as well. So um, we'll go to Steve now for the Sixers and Celtics X factors. So for the Sixers, I have shake Milton as the X factor. Um, he has a lot of game, you know, almost all the games in the seeding games. He did not really give me a lot of confidence in him. However, if he is somehow able to turn it around and get us closer to the, you know, the string of games he had before the uh, league suspended, I think that's going to be huge. That's all I've wanted, man. Yeah, that's, that's, that would be really ideal. That would just solve so many problems for us. And look, I don't expect him to really do much defensively, especially, you know, he's an inevitably going to go against Kemba Walker. Um, but if there's just points in the game where he can just slow him down and just have him, you know, pass the ball or, you know, just like I said, just slow him down a little bit. I, I think that's really going to help because I, I think Kemba Walker could be the reason why they win the series. Uh, as far as the Celtics X factor, yeah, I'm going to go in a different direction here. I'm going to say Marcus Smart. Uh, everyone has these expectations. Everyone knows that Kemba Walker, you know, how well he's going to perform. And Jason Tatum, although he, you know, may have those one or two clunker of a games where he goes, you know, for two 17. for, yeah, one for 15. But everyone will talk about how much better he is than Markel Fultz. Um, Marcus Smart, to me, he's kind, he's almost like our Mike Scott. He can, you know, just hit sometimes ridiculous shots, get under your skin. Um, but he won't, you know, Mike Scott, he isn't, you know, a huge asshole like Marcus Smart. And if he comes off the bench and uh, like Jesse said earlier, he just takes some really bad shots. But it seems like a lot of times players that take those lot of bad shots on the opposing team, they happen to fall. Uh, and if that happens, 
boy, I've no, I've you know I don't have any faith in the Sixers. All right, Chessie, you're up. Well, my X factor for the Sixers is Mike Scott. Um, you know, for the aforementioned lack of depth in the front court, I you know we want to see Horford off the bench. I don't necessarily believe that's what Brett's going to do. So I think we are going to see, you know, probably 15 to 20 minutes a night of Mike Scott. And really over the last few games since Ben Simmons has gone down, he's kind of been a reliable shooter. Um, He's been active enough on the glass, I think. And then, you know, you also factor in, like you just mentioned, his ability to mix it up with other players, get under players' skin to defend his teammates. I think those are all qualities you need in a playoff series, especially when you're playing the same team for possibly seven games. So I think Mike Scott in that sense is really going to be important just in terms of providing depth off the bench in the front court because there is no one else. And because he's a guy they have to count on to get scoring from as well. Like whoever's on the court for the Sixers at this point needs to contribute. There can't be any empty nights because there's no one to pick them up. So I think Mike Scott could really be important for the Sixers in this series or will be. For the Celtics, I'm going to say Robert Williams just because I think he carries a bit of that unknown quality. He is still young. We haven't seen a lot of him with the Celtics. He's just kind of earning his stripes with that team. So if, you know, this is a series where he starts getting more responsibility or say Cantor and Tice get into foul trouble, he's going to have to shoulder a lot of that load. And I think he's a guy who, because we know so little about him, really can be someone to come in and create problems for the Sixers. All right, Dan, Sixers and Celtics, X-Factor. All right, so I had Josh Richardson for the Sixers, which which Brandon took as well, which I think is, is a great pick. But I, I did write that I had him followed by Alec Burks. So I'll go with Alec Burks. I was surprised nobody else took him based on our conversations before this. Uh, Josh's defense and probably needing 17 a game for him, which I think is probably more easy to bank on than getting what we've been getting from Alec Burks. So it, it may even make sense to have to have Burks over Richardson. I think Alec Burks, if we win this series, Burks is going to have to average just shy of, if not 20 points a game off the bench. So that's what you traded for him for. But obviously we saw for a while that you know Brett wasn't giving him the minutes, nor was he really performing to near those expectations. But he's coming into this series, honestly, one of the hottest scorers in the league, you could argue. Uh, starting or bench. So they have to find a way to keep that rhythm. And, you know, other than Marcus Smart, really, I mean, I don't know if any Celtics a great matchup for him. So we've been spending a lot of time praising the Celtics uh, elite talent for how difficult we think they're going to be to guard. But I don't really trust that they can lock down Alec Burks if he's firing on all cylinders like he has been either. So, um, you know, we've made a lot of emphasis on making sure he gets playing time. Brandon even mentioned him being in the starting lineup. You know, whatever you have to do to get him out there and keep him going, I, I think that has to be a huge emphasis for the Sixers. For the Celtics, I, I know everyone's been kind of digging a little deep, but I, I have my reasons here. I think it's Kemba Walker. And, you know, Steve said you, you know what you're going to get from him, but I don't think that's the case. That certainly hasn't been the case since he's joined Boston as a Celtic versus us. He was very underwhelming in the opener this season and really hasn't had any of those games uh, nearly what he was doing to us when he was a Hornet. Now, obviously, he's surrounded by uh, much better talent, which helps, but he, he just hasn't looked great. And I think a lot of that may have had to do with having Ben Simmons available. So, you know, I talked a lot about how I think they have to defend him. We all kind of did to an extent. 
Uh, I think the Sixers have to focus on him, but we saw what guys like Damian Lillard and Devin Booker did to us recently in bubble games. So if Kemba Walker is able to you know, regain some of that Hornet form versus us combined with the scares we've had put into us by uh, point-of-attack guards that can score, then there's a real chance Kemba Walker could take over this whole series and, and all the, the conversation we're having about the, the wing matchups is, is really... Uh, you know, not all that important because we're just getting torched by Kemba Walker, which would would be very on brand for the Sixers. It certainly would be. So the next quick sip that we have, we'll start with Dan, go to Jesse, then Steve, and then myself. Sixers lose the series. Is Brett Brown fired? I think for a lot of us, this is going to be an easy answer, not to like (laughs) forecast what each of us is going to say. But if you want to add in, any thoughts of who you might want to replace him if he is fired or the domino effect that it might uh, start, you can uh, do that. So, Dan, we'll start with you. Is he gone if they lose the series? So I I have it at 90%. I think that he's gone if they lose the series, so most likely yes. We mentioned, I don't know if it was our last episode or the one before, but we had a, a, a bit of a conversation on this, and my only outlier possibility is that you take into consideration this whole coronavirus thing, playing in a bubble, the Ben Simmons injury, all of these things, and you just say, like, you know, h- how could you expect anybody to deal with that? You know, do we do we let him try one more time, beings that we don't want to hit the reset button and, and reset scheme and, and um, you know, uh, chemistry and locker room and all that stuff when we think that we're a title contender? I think there is some small chance that the Sixers ownership and, and – Elton Brand don't want to do that, but I think the noise has become too loud for them to ignore it. So it, it's very possible, but I would definitely leave the door open that there are many uh, circumstances that they could come up with a reason not to, and maybe he has a very, very short leash next season. Um, as far as replacements, I feel like the name that has been circulating and growing for some time now is Stan Van Gundy, which I've had lengthy discussions with uh, Sixers Twitter uh, legend, hero, uh, very knowledgeable fan, Marty Teller, who is a friend of our pod, and I, I believe we're going to try and get him on to have this conversation uh, pretty much as soon as they're out, which I expect to be you know, probably pretty soon, but... Uh, I'm not sure where I, I, I stand on uh, Stan Van Gundy yet. I listened to him on, uh, I believe it's called the Full 48 podcast, uh, and he does talk about the Sixers a lot. He seems like he's almost campaigning for this job at this point, kind of doing a, a media tour and seems to talk a lot about the Sixers. He does talk very favorably of them. He doesn't ever talk about Brett either way, which makes me believe that you know that that's to basically kind of stay out of the noise around it uh, to not – potentially be tampering for it. But what I like about Stan Van Gundy is he has a history of coaching very dominant centers, uh, whether you consider that prime Dwight Howard or even, uh, oh, my God, uh, Detroit. Uh, Drummond. Yeah, Drummond. Andre Drummond. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Um, and especially with Dwight, obviously, we, we saw him take them to a finals appearance uh, with Dwight being both a prolific scorer and elite defender at that time. He also seems very keen on not breaking up Embiid and Ben, uh, which is a requirement for me to want any coach to come here. And my argument has always been, you know, who you're going to get to replace Brett. And people have thrown out names like, uh, you know, Mark Jackson, 
and Jay Wright and uh, none of those appeal to me. So Stephen Gundy is the first one that I at least have to say, you know, I don't hate it. So uh, that's probably who I, I would have at the top of my list uh, if possible. I guess the question is, is does he actually want to coach again? I, I don't actually know, but it sure seems like it. All right, uh, Jesse, uh, Brett fires after the Sixers lose, if they lose. So I'm going to say they don't just because I don't really have faith in this leadership group to make a decision like that. It seems like they try as hard as they can to, you know, make excuses and give second chances. And, you know, I don't really think Josh Harris would sign off on firing Brett Brown at this point because he feels like a bit of an absentee owner and it feels like Brett's more of a friend to him and he he feels like he owes Brett. And I'm not sure Elton Brand, as aggressive as he is in the trade market and things like that, has kind of encountered a situation as an executive yet where he'd feel comfortable firing the coach. Um, and there's also the built-in excuse of losing Ben Simmons, being in a unique situation in the bubble. You know, you could write a laundry list of reasons that they could make up as to why they want to give Brett one more year. So, you know, I think you got to factor that all in. And just based off, I mean, how long they clung on to Colangelo even after the saga, like... You know, they took their time going through that. It seemed like they didn't really want to get rid of Brian Colangelo until they almost had no choice. So I think that's just kind of the culture around the franchise at this point is to not fire those people. Um, if they do, I mean, Stan Van Gundy is the name that kept coming to mind for me. I don't necessarily love Stan Van Gundy, but I do like that he is an older school coach. I feel like he will do things that Brett didn't in the sense of holding players more accountable, um, having shorter leashes, being more willing to make changes, things like that. You know, Brett Brown, as he's the, one of the all-time players coaches, and I think he was phenomenal for growing the process and developing the players during the process. But I think, I mean, I think it's apparent at this point, I don't know if, you know, our guests agree or not, but I don't think Brett Brown has really shown the ability to manage a contender. I think when there's no expectations, he's allowed to lose and he can just develop guys and be nice to them. He thrived, but now he's at a point where he has to be a bit tougher on the guys and he almost sees them more as like, like a kindergartner teacher with his kindergartners versus like, you know, a principal running the show. And that's just the vibe I get from Brett. I, I, you know, I love Brett. There's thing around last night about, you know, Brett, the person, like we can all agree Brett's one of the nicest people in the world, but I think how nice he is, is kind of backfiring him as much as his game planning is at this point. Steve, you are up. So before we all uh, started talking about this, I thought it would be a hundred percent chance that Brett Brown would be fired. Should we lose this series? Um, However, Dan made a really good point in that maybe because of everything, you know, just the oddity of COVID and the situation. Um, I even spoke before about how, you know, the Sixers, because there's going to be a huge, huge financial impact across the entire league. Salary caps are going to go down. Teams are probably going to try to control and mitigate, you know, expenses outside of the salary cap as well. So they may not want to rush in to fire him. Um, but at the end of the day, they just be like, you know what? It's just time for a change. He's been here for, what is it, seven years now? Um, and we just need to move on. I do, however, I've kind of talked myself into Stan Van Gundy 
for a lot of reasons that Dan just said. Um, I could see a scenario where Brett starts uh, next season on a very short leash, and if they struggle out coming out the gates, that maybe Stan Van Gunny's kind of waiting in the wings because uh, he's kind of at a point in his career where he can be picky with whom he wants to coach next if he does want to return to coaching. I don't see him coming to coach um, – you know, the Bulls or, you know, any of these other teams. He's the most logical fit. I'll tell you what, though, if, God forbid, they hire Mark Jackson or Jason Kidd, I'm looking for a new basketball team to root for. I just, uh, you know, Stan Van, Van Gundy's the most logical choice, but if they 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 get someone like that, I'm, I'm not going to be able to live with myself. Yeah. Uh, for me, if the Sixers lose this series in anything less than seven games, I think that he's 100% gone. While I completely understand the arguments about it being a unique situation with the coronavirus and uh, being in the bubble and, and having to deal with another year of turnover, you know, he dealt with so much turnover last season, he more or less had three teams that he had to try and coach. So he, he has had his set of challenges, but... One thing that I think that uh, we seem to not mention here is that, you know, for the first part of the season, thing like the offense was just very clunky. Like it, it, for me, it's less about like the situation and it's more about how things looked. And even though they look a little better right now in the bubble in some ways, uh, the fact that he's just shown uh, the inability to, to quickly make adjustments uh, during the regular season and, and really just uh, not not doing the things necessary to um, you know, play to the strengths of, of the two guys on the court. I feel like the dribble handoff with J.J. Redick, uh, you know, got him out of a lot of situations, a lot of heated situations. And I know he was on the hot seat on Sixers Twitter last year. Uh, but I feel like once the uh, dribble handoff was taken away, we don't really see the Sixers run plays. And I mean, there was a time where he was just like, you know, I don't want to have to be the one that calls plays. But it's clear that when you have this much roster turnover that you need to be able to take that bull by the horns and call plays. And Dan, you mentioned it about Stan Van Gundy, or maybe it was Jesse, but the fact that he is a coach that, you know, uh, worked with prime Dwight Howard, Andre Drummond, has a history of, of – of, being a strong coach in the NBA, I feel like he'd be able to bring out the things in Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid that we haven't been able to see Brett do. Um, so I think he's gone. I think Elton's aggression, uh, I think his his job being on the seat, hot seat too, isn't out of the question. So I feel like Brett be, if Brett stays, I feel like Elton's going to take the, the, you know, the flack if, if, if it doesn't work out. And I feel like seeing what Brett, what Elton has done at the trade deadline makes me believe that he needs to cut the cord because we don't want to get into a situation where next season they start off like two and five and they fire Brett and have to go through a coaching change earlier in the season. And Ime Adoka is already gone and they have just like uh, an assistant that we don't know right now. And it's just too much. I think you need to make a clear cut if it doesn't work out. And, and that's kind of that. I'm okay with Van Gundy. I'm I'm okay going homegrown with Udoka too because I still believe in the Spurs coaching uh, tree, but yeah, I think he's gone unless it goes to seven and they lose in like heartbreaking fashion again. I All will right. add that 
Waj just reported that Alvin Gentry was fired by the Pelicans. So there's another game out there. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. The next, actually our final quick sip of this episode is going to be series prediction and series MVP. So starting with me, uh, I'm going to just go with what I had in my head since uh, I knew it was locked in with Boston. I think, unfortunately, it's going to be Boston in six, and I think the series MVP is going to be Jason Tatum because I feel like the Markel Fultz pick being thrown in our face so many times already, it's just going to happen again because that's how things work in Philadelphia sports. So, Steve, uh, Steve, your thoughts? So, I have a feeling, I just, in my gut, it's telling me this is a seven-game series. It's going to come down to the fourth quarter of that game. And I see Boston pulling away with it, unfortunately, as well. Um, if Boston does win the series, I really think, as I said earlier, it'll be Kemba Walker. He has a lot to prove. Again, this is the first time he's playing in the playoffs, and he might be able to exploit some of the weaknesses in the Sixers perimeter defense. Uh, so I see him being a really, really you know big part of that. Uh, he'd probably be the one most consistent, especially when – you know, Gordon Hayward or Jason Tatum can have their bad games. If the Sixers do win, it's because it's all Embiid. Uh, he's going to have to carry the team. He's going to have to score over 30 points a game in order for them to win. Uh, so if they do win, I think the MVP will be Embiid. Jesse. Yeah, I have the Celtics winning the series probably, I think, like six or seven games, and definitely Kemba Walker would be my MVP just because – he is like that same ISO player that never misses his open shots as Devin Booker is, as Damian Lillard is, as apparently TJ Warren is now. <laughs> um, that type of player just – and even Kemba himself in the past with Charlotte has always killed the Sixers. So I really think he's just going to go off this series, and that's pretty much going to be it. I think he'll be unstoppable for us. You know, coupled with the depth the Celtics have behind them and the plethora of scoring options they have, I don't think the Sixers can really beat the Celtics right now. Um, you know, obviously, as was just said, if the Sixers do somehow win the series, it would have to be Embiid as the MVP. There's really no other option. And Dan? So I've made sure to be very analytical and, and try to flex my knowledge and prowess for the entire duration of this episode and be very fair and complimentary to Boston, but... Uh, in my heart of hearts, I just I just can't do it here. Um, I got to be on my bullshit a little bit. Uh, sorry for <laughs> cursing, Brandon, but I'm going Sixers and seven. I don't see how they win it any quicker. But if Boston lets them hang around, I think you know the longer this series goes, the more it will favor the Sixers because if it goes longer, that means that Embiid is playing and healthy, and they've figured something out. And if if you give them the light at the tunnel. Uh, I truly believe that these guys w w wanted enough that guys like Horford and Embiid and Tobias especially, you know, will, will be so fed up with all the the things they've heard throughout this entire year and, and the time they've missed and the knocks about their playing and their fit that it may just rally them to pull it off. And if the Sixers are going to win this series, you're obviously going to need Joel Embiid to play to expectations, but to win this series... It's going to also take Tobias Harris going off, and I am Team Tobias, and Tobias Absolutely. will be my series MVP. Always been good. Averaging 25-8-4 if they do it. Wait, so we weren't allowed to curse this entire time? Brandon doesn't like cursing on oh, podcasts. Shit. Sorry, Brandon. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I have my fucking rule. 
<laughs> Touche, brother. Well played. So, yeah, guys, this has been great. Looking looking ahead, um, the Sixers and Celtics start their series Monday, August the 17th, uh, 6.30 on ESPN. Game two will be the 19th at 6.30 on TNT. Game three, the 21st, which is this coming Friday, 6.30 on TNT. And game four will be Sunday the 23rd at 1 p.m. on ABC. And then, uh, if necessary, game five will be the 25th. Game six will be the 27th. And game seven will be the 29th. So, process potables, folks, uh, us here at Garbage Into Gold really appreciate uh, this collaboration. I mentioned it at the beginning during our intro, but uh, make sure you're following all of their stuff uh, at Process Potables on Twitter. Uh, visit online at processpotables.com. They don't just have a basketball and beer podcast. They have wrestling and beer, hockey and beer, movies and beer, so much in beer. So if you are a, a fan of, of drinking and trying different uh, types of beers, whether it be IPAs or, or something else, uh, they are the guys for you. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you having us on. Appreciate you coming on for us. Uh, we've also plugged the Garbage and the Gold stuff, but again, make sure you check them out at Garbage into Gold, and you can follow Brandon at bapter23 and Jesse at Jesse Large. So thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. Let's uh, let's do it again. More crossover episodes. Yeah, so yeah. It was fun. Yeah, certainly. All right, we'll catch uh, you guys next time on another episode of Garbage into Gold, and Dan and Steve will catch you guys next time on the next Process Potable. Yeah, I'll touch you in like 20 minutes. Bye, Brandon. See you, Jesse. See <laughs> Alright, guys, so that's going to do it for us. Uh, make sure that you are following us as well on Twitter and on Untapped at Process Potables, on Instagram at Podcast Potables Network. You can find all our game recaps. We grade the Sixers players on every game. We will continue doing that throughout the playoffs as long as or short as they go at www.processpotables.com. Shout out our sponsor, the Andrew Boss team at Berkshire Hathaway. See if you have any final words or anything you need to get off your chest after going through all that. I feel really guilty for selecting the Celtics over the Sixers, but don't you – you know, think for one second, I'm not rooting for them. I just, yeah. sometimes it's good to be wrong, you know? We're wrong a lot. So ultimately, maybe you're, you're just kind of, you know, yep. playing that card here uh, to, hey. to turn the tides. And, and you know what? In uh, 2018, I thought the Eagles would lose in the first round to the Falcons and look okay. what happened. So like I said, whatever sometimes it's good to be. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. So for Steve, I'm Dan. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Again, thanks to our friends Brandon and Jesse from At Garbage Into Gold. Uh, we will be doing a pod after game two and after game four, and then we'll figure it out based on you know how the series is going from there. But we will recap games one and two. Wednesday night should be out for you Thursday morning, and we will recap games three and four and the series to that point. Sunday night to have out for you the next day on Monday. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and trust the podcast. <laughs>